this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath with elections coming up in five states it was expected that the union budget for the financial year 2022-23 would focus on addressing the crisis of unemployment one of the things that finance minister nirmala sitaraman needed to do in this regard was to increase government spending and she appears to have done so increasing the capital expenditure outlay by 35.4% a big chunk of the increase is meant for expanding the highway network but will this be enough to draw in adequate amounts of private investment and ensure job creation on a massive scale also how do we understand the logic behind the cuts in subsidies with fertilizer subsidy food subsidy and petroleum subsidies all witnessing a clear decline while job creation remains a primary concern the allocation for uh, narega or the mahatma gandhi uh, national rural employment guarantee scheme which saw a surge in demand during the pandemic uh, the allocation for the narega scheme has also not been increased in fact there's a marginal decline in it as well so how do we assess the budget on the welfare front in the domains of health education and farmer welfare in this podcast we look to unpack the numbers of the union budget and get to the core of what it means for the common man and our guest today is is the economist arun kumar who is a malcolm s adiseshaya chair professor at the institute of social sciences new delhi professor kumar thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me uh, professor kumar in your piece a few days ago on pre budget expectations you had identified three primary uh, concerns or issues if i if i may say so correct these were incomes employment and privatization how do you assess the budget on these three fronts so on these three fronts the budget has not done much its arithmetic is somewhat faulty because it has assumed a 11.1% growth uh, for the increase in uh, expenditures and increase in revenues now given that the economic survey has said that the real rate of growth would be 8.5% it implies that the inflation that is being factored in is only 2.6% now that is very unlikely because the inflation rate is currently running at 5.5% or thereabouts and it is expected to continue there given the international rise in prices given that you know uh, you know us inflation is very high so it's very unlikely that we will have a inflation of 2.6% the inflation rate is likely to be much higher so what i worry about is about the numbers you know how good are the numbers that are there in the budget a second point is that it is argued that the capital expenditures will be raised by substantially as you said by 35% over the budget estimates of last year uh, but that also does not seem to be very likely because if you look at the cga figures for november 2021 that means the first 8 months of the current year then the expenditures on capital items were about less than 50% of what was planned the 5.54 lakh crores so suddenly in 4 months you're not going to achieve the target that was set for the year and if you don't achieve the target for this year it's very unlikely that you'll have a rise you know to 7.5 lakh crores for the coming year so these two items which would have expanded the economy uh, these two items uh, don't seem to be working in favor of expanding the economy and employment because the increase in total expenditure uh, from uh, about uh, 37 lakh crores 
to about 39.4 lakh crores. That comes to 4.6%, which is also below inflation. So effectively, you'll be spending less than what you were, uh, what you had spent in the current year. So both these items, I think, will fall short in terms of generation of demand, in terms of employment creation, etc. Now, I'm not saying there'd be no employment generation because you are going to spend more on inflation. Uh, let me just uh, stop you here, uh, Professor Kumar, just to uh, uh, clarify one point. You said by these two items, one is you mean the, the capital expenditure and, and the other one being? The total expenditure and the budget. Okay, so you're saying that basically uh, the, water, the, the, the issue is not so much that the government claims to have increased the allocation for capital expenditure. What you're saying is that whatever was allotted last year has not been spent and they're not going to be able to spend it. So they don't seem to be in a clear position to explain how they will spend the money they have allocated. Yes. Uh, so while the schemes have been announced, but obviously what happens is that while uh, you sort of uh, go through the year, one is not able to spend that much because the schemes you know, have not been fully factored in. They have not been really, what can one say, planned properly. The roadmap uh, for all this Gati Shakti, etc., that needs to be prepared well in advance before you can actually do that. So there are delays and there are, uh, you know, lags that take place and therefore the expenditures don't come up to scratch. Uh, that's what's happened this year. That's happened earlier. And that's very likely to happen in the coming year. So to say that we have increased expenditures uh, on capital items, the total expenditures, neither of them actually uh, are really going to materialize. And therefore, there'll be a problem. There'll be further problem because the Gati Shakti program of uh, infrastructure is planning to create a very capital intensive construction. You know, whether it be modern, uh, you know, freight corridors or modern roads, etc. They are made with, you know, uh, highly capital intensive work where big bulldozers, big cranes, etc. operate and very little direct employment is generated. Those schemes where employment generation could have been much more, like, for instance, rural development and agriculture, there you see that inflation adjusted, the allocations are much less. So the emphasis, even if one achieves the capital expenditure target that is set, even then the employment generation would be far less and the loss of employment in the rural areas and in agriculture because the allocations are less, that will be much more. And therefore, in the net, I don't think there's going to be much employment generation that will take place. So that's why I'm a bit sanguine about, you know, the target of employment being created uh, because we should look at the net how much net increase in employment takes place as a result of the budget. Uh, also, as you mentioned about incomes, you know, those people at the bottom 60% who have lost incomes as the data has come out, uh, they are the ones who are suffering and they needed support in terms of increased subsidies so that they have purchasing power in their hand and that uh, would have led to increased capacity utilization and then that would have spurred private investment uh, even more. Uh, that's not happening. And then, you know, uh, for instance, uh, farmers have been complaining that their cost of production has gone up. And uh, like, for instance, diesel prices have gone up, fertilizer prices have gone up. There are shortages of fertilizer. So the government needed to do something about that. But I think in both these items, there is a cut. So the farmers, which is a very big chunk, they are also going to suffer more or continue to suffer as uh, before. There's something needed to uh, be done there. Uh, the micro sector which is the other big employer in the economy because the micro sector is 99% of the units of the MSME and employs 97.5% of the workers in the MSME sector. And the micro units have been suffering because of lack of working capital. When they close down because of the small amount of capital, they exhaust their working capital. 
And so they needed support there. But what the government has been doing since the Atnirbhar Bharat scheme, which was announced in May 2020, is to lump the micro, small and medium together. Uh, now, once you do that, small and medium get the benefit, but the micro doesn't. And as I said, micro is 97.5% of the employment there. Now, if those units close down, then there's going to be further trouble. Then finally, I would say the demand has been shifting from the unorganized sector to the organized sector. And like, for instance, in the case of trade, uh, local traders are finding their business going down, whereas e-commerce is growing. So clearly, demand is shifting from the unorganized sector to the organized sector there. And that's the case in many other sectors where micro sector and the small sectors in competition with the organized sector. So in other words, the decline in the unorganized sector is not captured by our GDP data. And therefore, you know, I don't buy the argument that our rate of growth is 8.5% next year or currently it's 9.2%. Right. So you're saying that because the unorganized sector and the uh, micro enterprises are not being addressed, the, the kind of uh, boost in demand which is necessary for uh, capacity utilization in private sector investment to grow is not going to happen. Yes. So investment, you know, can be spurred by increasing demand or by increasing the public expenditures. Now, as I said, public expenditures are going up by less than the rate of inflation. So therefore, there's no boost coming from there. Uh, capital account, they are claiming that they will uh, increase by 35%, but I doubt it will increase by 35% uh, because, you know, this year we have not been able to fulfill target. So in other words, you know, where will the boost come from? And therefore, capacity utilization, if it remains low, private investment will not be spurred. That's the problem which does not mean that there'll be no private investment. Private investment will continue to take place in sectors which are doing very well, whether that be uh, technology-related sectors, e-commerce, uh, and things like that. But in the aggregate, the investment will not go up. Right. And how do you view the government's projections on uh, revenue receipts or tax collections, given that uh, so far the significant chunk of it has been coming from the taxes on uh, petrol and diesel? I mean, what happens if... Uh, global crude prices uh, rise this year, as as many say they will. So, you know, uh, the, the tax buoyancy has been quite high this year. And again, the reason is the organized sector is doing very well. Corporate profits have been rising. If you look at the sample coming from RBI, they've been rising at about 22-24%. Now, that's a huge rise given that the economy is stagnant or, or actually uh, not yet come back to the 2019 level. So, all that implies that the uh, corporate sector's pricing power has gone up. They're able to make far more profits. And therefore, you know, corporate tax collection and income tax collections have been very buoyant. Uh, similarly, because the organized sector is the one that pays the GST, as uh, Arun Jaitley used to famously say, 5% of the units pay 95% of the tax uh, of GST. So it's the organized sector that we are seeing where the revenue buoyancy has been high. Now, if the buoyancy in the organized sector continues, then the revenue projections that are being made uh, will be fulfilled. But my own suspicion is that as we saw before the pandemic, the because of the lack of uh, enough demand, the rate of growth had been slowing down. So what we are doing is we are just catching up at the moment on the decline that had taken place. But going forward, will the uh, demand continue at such a level uh, that you know the uh, corporate sector profits and the organized sector profits will continue to grow at the level that they were growing last year? I doubt that. So therefore, there'll be a slowdown in the rise in uh, corporate profits and GST collections th that I anticipate. And therefore, you know, uh, what the what is assumed in the budget uh, may not turn out to be correct. Right. 
And how do we understand uh, the cut in Narega allocations? Uh, it's come down from the revised estimate of 98,000 crores to 73,000 crores. I mean, do we? Some people say that it doesn't really matter because this is a demand-driven uh, scheme, and more money can be allocated uh, depending on demand. But uh, is that the way to go about it? No, I see. For instance, earlier uh, the previous year, 60,000 crores were uh, allocated to it, and finally we spent 1.1 lakh crores. That was cut to 73,000 crores and that has gone up to 98,000 crores. But if you look at the data coming out, then what you find is the people are getting less than 50 days of work, whereas each family is supposed to get at least 100 days of work. You know, So therefore, because of inadequate allocations, people are not getting enough work. That means they're not getting enough income also from it. So that needs to be expanded. Then there are complaints that some people don't get any work at all. So in other words, even when they demand work, uh, they're not able to get work. So both these factors suggest that actually we need to increase the allocations much more. Given that 60% at the bottom uh, have lost incomes and large number of them probably are trying to get some income in the Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, uh, because they have lost incomes, they need to be supported in terms of higher income. And therefore, this allocation must be substantially increased rather than every year after spending that much money, you cut it back and then you exhaust the funds by October, November, and then states are scrambling to get more funds so that they can spend on the scheme. Uh, so that is a scheme, uh, you know, that creates a lot of uncertainty. Uh, that's not able to help the poor people. And that's why we need to increase income so that we can increase the demand in the economy. So I don't uh, like this idea that every year you cut it back to a lower level and then you keep allocating funds, you know, from time to time but which are never adequate to give enough employment to those who've lost employment. Right. I mean, I, re I also remember reading uh, in the run-up to the budget, there were quite a few uh, calls for a scheme similar to Narega for uh, for urban areas, urban employment guarantee schemes as well. But let alone an urban guarantee scheme, we seem to be uh, not doing enough uh, to support the existing rural guarantee scheme either. Yes. So uh, we've been talking since demonetization about having a scheme for urban unemployed because there are a large number of young people in the urban areas who are not able to get employment. And we've seen the protests that have taken place recently and protests that have taken place earlier where youth is protesting for a lack of employment opportunities. So there is definitely a need to boost employment generation in the urban areas also. Uh, and that is slightly more tricky than you know uh, creating employment through rural employment guarantee scheme. But it can be done because there's an inadequate amount of expenditure on education health. The quality of education health is uh, very poor in the country. So we can spend a lot of money uh, employing young educated people in the areas of education, health and infrastructure uh, that could be created in the urban areas and in the rural areas. So I think we need a lot more planning. What the government does is uh, it does not plan uh, in advance for these things. While it talks about Gati Shakti and other things, which are highly capital intensive, but where the labor intensive sectors are concerned, like education, health, uh, rural drinking water, other such uh, infrastructure, there the government is not planning in advance. Whereas I think that's where it needs to plan. But unfortunately, the government is following what are called supply side uh, policies. And the economic survey again and again flags that. Uh, the finance minister also flagged that, that we are following supply side policies, which mean we will give concessions to businesses but we will not give at the lower level to wage earners. You know, so supply side policies are weighed against the wage earners. I think that's why they're not thinking of uh, expanding the rural employment guarantee scheme, expanding the urban 
employment guarantee scheme and partly it is because they are worried that if they do that wages will go up and when wages go up then industry will find its cost rising uh, there may be inflation as well and i think that's why uh, the government is not going in for uh, these kind of schemes right but if wages go up won't that also uh, boost uh, demand boost consumption yes you are absolutely right and that's why it should be done but the point is the government you know worries that you know businesses would be affected their profits could be affected and if inflation takes place the middle class could start protesting uh, more so the political economy of it is that uh, the unorganized sector acts as the reserve army of labor which keeps wages down so i think it may be a deliberate ploy that we ha- we keep the unorganized sector as it is don't allow the wages there to go up right you spoke a little bit earlier about health and education in the context of urban employment generation and uh, there haven't been any kind of a meaningful increase uh, in the he- in the outlays for health and education while we do have a big intent in terms of increasing the outlays for infrastructure so are we i mean we also had this narrative of amrit kal and 25 years of prosperity but what we are getting uh, in the budget itself seems to be a big push for infrastructure roads and highways and all that but not enough of uh, uh, of push in terms of healthy citizens and educated citizens So are we going to have a land of big highways, but people who are malnourished and uneducated? How does this vision of Amrit Kal fit in with the reality of poor allocations for health and education? So, as I was saying earlier, this entire scheme, you know, is basically for businesses because they will get orders for these infrastructure projects, etc., and they don't want wages to rise. If you create a lot of employment in education, health, etc. then wages are likely to rise and that would hit profits so therefore you know the unorganized sector as i said is being used as a reserve army of labor so you know the the system does not care as we have seen during the pandemic large number of uh, people were destitute they said that uh, you know they don't have money even to buy one week of supplies so if that is the case that means the situation is rather uh, bad and as you said education and health structures are very very poor in the country and that's why basically the unorganized sector has very uncivilized living conditions if you improve that then the government's worry must be that you know it will increase the cost for the industries and the lower the profits of businesses and that they don't want to do so they are happy you know that's the thing that it looks like that they are happy that the, there's a unorganized sector which lives in uncivilized conditions their children don't get proper education as the acer report suggests 50% children in rural areas uh, are not able to uh, you know read second class textbook uh. and there are also big big number of vacancies uh, for teachers right lots of uh, teacher vacancies yes so there are a lot of and that's a low hanging fruit which the the government could have plucked by you know appointing in schools and in uh, the government services you know apparently there are lakhs of posts that are lying vacant but that's part of the you know scheme of things under the new economic policies is to reduce the government so the size of government has been uh, reduced uh, over a period of time and that's part of the scheme of supply side economics so i think it's all fitting in with the kind of package uh, of policies which is pro business but doesn't take care of the workers and one of the reasons uh, that you know one can see why that is happening also is because capital is highly mobile whereas labor is not 
So globally, capital can move and global, globally, capital has been extracting concessions from national economies. Uh, and that is at the expense of labor. So the share of capital in GDP has been going up. The share of labor has been coming down. And I think this is all a part of, uh, you know, all that. Right. And one of the few sectors that seem to have weathered the pandemic lockdown phase reasonably well uh, is agriculture. But the outlay for agriculture and allied activities has come down from 4.3% of the GDP to 3.84% of the GDP. So what is the rationale behind this move, according to you, uh, coming as it does on the heels of the farmers' agitation and their demand for an MSP law? So, you know, the government's plan has been for quite some time to corporatize agriculture trade. Uh, and that's what the three bills were all about. And the government, I don't think, has given up on that. You know, so if the crisis is there in agriculture, they will say that, look, agriculture is not able to deal with it. And therefore, we, we have to uh, have cap investment from the corporate sector. And one way or the other, they may introduce, uh, you know, changes in agriculture. So if you allocate more to agriculture, make it more viable as it is, then I think that plan would not work. So I think it's a deliberate ploy uh, to see that agriculture continues in a crisis, farmers' incomes uh, are low, uh, and they are able to push through the corporatization of agriculture as well. So I think it's something like that probably. Uh, and again, that fits in with the supply side uh, economics that the government wants to uh, continue to play with. Right. Uh, moving on to a slightly different area, it has been pointed out by many that 70% of the fiscal deficit uh, will be financed by market borrowing as opposed to 55% uh, last year. Is this something uh, one needs to worry about? No, I would not worry about uh, this because there is a lot of liquidity slushing around uh, in the banking system. Many people have pointed out that between 6 to 10 lakh crores of liquidity is there. Uh, and because the private investment has not been coming forth, and that's why this liquidity is there. So I think the government should be able to borrow. Now, that might mean a slight rise in the bond uh, yields and so on. But I think on the whole, uh, it's important that the government, you know, finances this fiscal deficit because then only the expenditures can be increased on the social welfare schemes. Otherwise, the social welfare schemes would be curtailed even more drastically if you curtail the fiscal deficit and you don't do the borrowing. So I think, you know, this is a lesser evil, especially in the current situation where investments have not been very high, liquidity is slushing around in the banking system and funds are available for expansion of the social welfare schemes. Right. And one of the big uh, headlining uh, ideas in this budget is the, is, is the proposed announcement of uh, a blockchain-based uh, digital currency. Uh, which will be a fiat currency apparently and it's called central bank digital currency. So why does India need uh, a blockchain blockchain based digital currency and, and how will this be different from the same Indian rupee in digital form? Like what is this about? So, you know, at the moment we don't have a, a digital currency, but you know the cryptos have been coming in and cryptos have been playing the role of both uh, money as well as asset. That's why a lot of criminals are using cryptos to actually extract funds from uh, people. And, you know, the first transaction that, that took place using Bitcoin was, I think, in 2009 when somebody bought a pizza for some 10,000 Bitcoins or so. Now, that means at that point, it was about one upon 2,500 of a dollar, whereas now it's running at about $30,000 per Bitcoin and in between it was even $60,000 per Bitcoin. 
So given that there's a shortage of these uh, Bitcoins, you know, it's highly speculative and therefore people have been putting money into it in a very speculative way. Uh, it's also like a Ponzi scheme where those who entered early, uh, they are the ones who have gained. You know, as I said, if the uh, Bitcoin in uh, 2009 was one upon 2,500 of a dollar and then it rises to $60,000, it means it's gone up by about 100 million times. You know, no other uh, asset has gone up so much. So there are a lot of speculation. So what the government is doing is by introducing this uh, currency on blockchain is to say, okay, there is an alternate way of transaction, but there'll be no shortage of it. Bitcoins are capped at uh, 21 million. And that's why as time goes by, its mining is becoming more and more expensive in terms of computer time. And therefore, its price rises just like gold price rises when the gold mining cost uh, rises. Now, if you have you know, a currency which is uh, controlled by the central bank, then you can print, uh, you can mint as much as you like, as much as the demand, and therefore it will be stable. So that's why in the crypto uh, arena also, there are different kinds of currencies, which are like Bitcoins or altcoins or stable coins. Stable coins are pegged to the fiat currency. So when the government introduces that, then the, the chances that people will shift to Bitcoins will be less. Uh, secondly, once the Bitcoins have been introduced globally, uh, anybody can take money out from India under the LRS and invest in that. So therefore, you'll have to find that uh, there'll be leakage of funds from India when people speculate on it. So putting a tax on it, you know, uh, is a good thing. So at least the speculation from within the country will not take place. A lot of uh, small investors are putting in a thousand, two thousand rupees every month and they don't understand this uh, Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies properly. Uh, they may lose out and that will create a problem. Uh, secondly, if the cryptos become very popular and they start replacing because they have value, they can replace the currencies and people can start trading. That will affect our banking system and that will also affect the financial stability. That's what the IMF is worried about. And that's why IMF has asked El Salvador, which was the first country to make cryptos legal, uh, to not uh, allow it as a legal tender. Uh, so therefore, globally, unless we take coordinated steps, the genie is out of the bottle. Now to ban it is going to be impossible. So you have to regulate it and you have to regulate it globally. Unless there's global coordination, uh, some country which allows it, then it'll spread through the net. So that's why I think it's very important. Uh, but at the moment, the schemes are not fully fleshed out. The RBI probably is working at it, just like the Fed and other uh, central banks are also working at how to deal with the situation because it's a, it's a tricky situation. It's a new situation. Uh, already the cryptos are valued at about $2.5 trillion, which is more than the gold. So this has become a big asset class and we need to do something about it. Right. And, 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 and the finance minister has announced that uh, the crypto assets will be taxed at uh, 30%. I'm a little curious about how this will play out because we, we I mean, you may have noticed that even uh, last year during many of these high profile uh, sports uh, events, such as IPL and the World Cup, there was like tremendous amount of advertising focused on 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 crypto, uh, Bitcoin exchanges and Bitcoins and cryptos. And they were targeted at uh, lower middle class and those with not a lot of money, you know. The people are being encouraged to invest 100 rupees and 50 rupees and so on. So how is this 30% tax going to affect uh, the millions of uh, you know, not very rich people who have invested in crypto in response to this huge advertising blitz and hype around it? So as I said, it's a bit like a Ponzi scheme because those who've entered early, they are the ones who are going to gain. Uh, 
so I'm more worried that actually, uh, you know, a lot of people who will continue to invest because its prices are going up, uh, they have to be dissuaded from uh, doing so. Uh, those who've already invested, say, some small sums of money, uh, 20,000, 50,000 or something like that, they may lose a bit of uh, money. But I don't think this scheme should be allowed to continue because a lot more people as they enter, it'll be smaller people. And if they begin to make big losses, and if you remember in uh, November last, it had gone up to $60,000, the Bitcoin has come down to about $30,000. That means whoever invested in it at that point of time has actually lost half the value. Then also, it's not easy to get into Bitcoins. You have to create wallets. Uh, you have to actually go through exchanges. And there are a lot of fake exchanges that are coming up. There are a lot of wallets that are being hacked. Recently, we had the Hamas hacking into some wallets and uh, getting the cryptos from there. So there are a lot of criminal activity associated with it. And that's why I think it's good to try and stop it in its tracks at the moment and not uh, think about some people losing certain amount of money, uh, those who invested earlier. I think we, we have to look ahead. Uh, and as I said, the genie is out of the bag, so we can't ban it. Because if we ban it, then the money will simply be taken out through the back door, uh, through the flight of capital and uh, continued. So at the moment, I think it's important to prevent this activity or to see that it's minimized in the country. Right. Uh, we're running out of time, Professor Kumar. So before we wind up, uh, any uh, final concluding uh, thoughts on the budget from the point of view of uh, the common man from the salaried classes? So, you know, uh, the uh, common man is affected by inflation. Uh, common man is, is not the one who pays direct taxes. As the Prime Minister said, there are 15 million effective uh, direct taxpayers. Uh, that's 1.1% of the population. So bulk of the people are affected by, uh, you know, the, the indirect taxes. And they are also affected by inflation. So to control inflation is very important because A, people have lost incomes and B, on the other hand, they're suffering from inflation. So it's very important to lower the prices in the economy somehow, and that requires indirect taxes to be cut. Uh, it also requires that, you know, the excise duty on uh, uh, petrol, diesel, etc., that should be cut. And the GST council should meet and cut uh, some of the indirect taxes on the, those items which are consumed by the common people. I know that many items are at 5% or 0%, but even there, the 5% items or 12% items, they need relief. So the finance minister could have announced that. So uh, that would have helped. Right. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Kumar, for sharing your thoughts on the budget. And uh, we hope to come back and talk to you some more about other aspects of the economy going forward as well. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Sampad, for having me. Thanks a lot. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.